you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day everybody, it's Pastor Luke and I'm so glad to have you with us for the very first episode of The West Weekly. I've dressed up for it, I've even got nice pants on, you can't see that. Uh, I'm still not wearing shoes but you know, I didn't want to overdress. But it's very exciting to be with you today uh, as we begin this new thing and it seems kind of fitting that we do it uh, at our sixth birthday. We're still the church, we're still gathering again around God's word, we're still going on seeking and pursuing him, seeking to know him and to make him known. And so uh, what we wanted to do as a big part of these West Weeklies uh, was to spend some time in God's word. And so every week we want to uh, have a little mini sermon, it'll be shorter than normal, I'm sure many of you are very grateful for that. Um, uh, but we wanted to still spend some time looking at God's word together. Uh, the idea is that we can supplement and complement what we're doing on the Sunday. Of course, uh, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians as a movement, but this is a book that just has so much stuff in there. And so my goal is to try and squeeze out some more juice every week. Uh, so today, for instance, uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to, through to 2, verse 5. Uh, there's some, a little section there that a uh, guy wasn't able to cover in his sermon this week, uh, and it'll really set us up for the rest of the book a little bit as well. Uh, so I'm excited to get into it. How about we pray as we do that? Father, I want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that it's living and active, and you've got things to say to us. And we pray that we might be willing to listen and to learn and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, have you ever tried to tell someone the gospel and despaired of them believing it? Uh, you're going through it, explaining it all. You're talking about sin and judgment. You're telling them about the work of Jesus, about his perfect life, his atoning death, his miraculous resurrection. And as you're going through all of this, you, you, you find yourself listening to it as well and you're thinking, mate, there is no way that they're going to believe this. It's just too weird. It's too bizarre. And that's, not, that's without even mentioning the virgin birth. Or perhaps you worry that it's just too jarring. I mean, people don't want to hear about sin and judgment. And in fact, even some of the best stuff about the gospel, like the idea of grace, can be offensive to people. Just recently I was chatting to someone who who just feels like it's not right that God would give salvation to people. Um, Have you ever had that kind of experience? You, You feel your voice trailing off as you're telling the gospel, because you've started to lose heart. You've started to realize, to feel like this just sounds a bit too much. I know I have. Now, now don't get me wrong. Uh, when I experience this, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm doubting the truth for myself. I still believe it, but I realize why some people might not believe it and why they might struggle to accept it. And in these moments, I think it can be tempting to want to edit the gospel, to add to it or take away from it, to make it more acceptable, less offensive, to make it more logical, more believable, or to just jazz it up, make it more exciting and positive. If you're one of God's people, uh, you've probably faced this experience, and it turns out that you're not alone. This is an ancient problem, something that the church in Corinth faced as well. They believed the, the gospel, the truth, But many of their fellow citizens did not. Indeed, they scorned it. And so they were tempted to edit the gospel and to make it more attractive. And so we're going to see in today's passage that Paul actually brings them back to the heart of the gospel message. And he tells them, no, 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 you've got to commit to this and own this, no matter what, no matter how people respond. See, this is what Paul was like. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his whole thing. He was just totally focused on telling the gospel message, and he wanted them to be the same. Uh, He recognized that people might respond badly, but he said, you still need to tell the gospel and let God work through that. First of all, we see how Paul examines why people reject the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He says that the Jews demanded signs. You see, the Jews felt that God was very powerful and intervened in human life. And so they believed if something was from God, God would make it really, really clear that it was from him. They'd experienced this in their nation's history, of course. You think about all the miracles as they came out of Egypt, which we read about in the book of Exodus. And then when they heard about the Messiah, this great hero, the saviour who was going to come and rescue them, they expected that God would show him uh, to be the Messiah through signs as well. They were expecting lots of big, dramatic things to happen when the Messiah came. And so when rumours started spreading that Jesus was the Messiah, they demanded signs from him. So we read in John 6, verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
they're basically testing him. They're, they're demanding evidence. Look, you might say you're the Messiah, but you need to show us some signs to prove it. Now, you might argue that Jesus did plenty of signs. I mean, he healed the sick. He fed thousands of hungry people. He calmed the waves of the storm. He exercised demons. Look, it's a pretty impressive list. But they just refused to see these signs. And then, of course, for them... His whole ministry was discredited when he died on the cross. You see, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it said that anyone who died like this was actually cursed in Deuteronomy 21. It says that if anyone committed a crime that was punishable by death and was hanged up to die on a tree or like crucifixion, they were to be considered cursed by God. And so that was enough for them. Uh, the message of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because uh, for them, how could their Messiah be cursed? For the Greeks, meanwhile, the cross was folly because it just didn't fit with their worldview about anything. Uh, the cross was something that sent a shiver down the spine of every ancient person. The, the Roman soldiers were very creative in devising physical punishment for criminals, and crucifixion was their most hideous and horrible invention. As such, it was reserved for the very vilest, the most vile of criminals, the terrorists, the insurrectionists. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be killed by crucifixion. It just was too shameful. Uh, one writer says that death on a cross was regarded in Roman society as brutal, disgusting and abhorrent. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. Now, it's important for us to remember this because we've lost some of the sting of the cross. In our culture, the cross has become a kind of icon, almost a, a fashion item. You know, people wear fancy, fashionable crucifixes around their necks or they make beautiful, ornate versions of the cross and celebrate it in some kind of way. And for an ancient person, that would just seem bizarre. I mean, this was a symbol of pain and shame and dread. Uh, Imagine people today making a fashion item out of an electric chair or venerating a terrorist suspect who has been waterboarded. It just doesn't make sense. So for Jesus to die like this, it was just uh, disgraceful. Now, this was bad enough, but it was inconceivable in the context that people claimed that Jesus was God. You see, the Greeks believed that God was distant from humanity and unaffected by it, that there was, he just wouldn't be involved in human life in any kind of way. And there was actually a kind of logic to this. You see, they believed that if God felt grief or joy or anger because of humanity, it would mean that God had been influenced by humanity. And so in some sense, humanity had a kind of power over over God. And so they just couldn't countenance this. And so they decided that God was just wholly remote and aloof. He just couldn't be affected by the world or by humans. And so the gospel story of God coming into the world was just inconceivable and unseemly. As one writer puts it, the very idea of incarnation of God becoming a man was revolting to the Greek mind. Or as Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher, uh, put it, for God to descend to man would mean change from good to bad, from beautiful to ugly, from happiness to unhappiness, from what is best to what is worst. God would never accept such a change. 
And then, of course, the thought that God would do all this to die just seemed like the height of folly to the Greeks. You see, for them, wisdom equated to a successful life. It it was about finding the technique to live a happy and a comfortable life, working out how to have power and influence and fame and fortune. Uh, That was what everyone was about in Corinth, and that was the kind of person they respected. They admired someone who made something of themselves, Uh, whether that was the merchant who managed to amass a great wealth or the the athlete who won at the Olymp- at the Isthmian Games, or the gladiator slave who fought his way to freedom in the in the circus in the arena, or the orator who won the acclaim of the crowds—that was the person they thought was wise. They had made a success of themselves. But when they looked at the story of Jesus, they saw just the opposite of this. I mean, Jesus had this incredibly hard life. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected by men, misunderstood by his own followers, deserted by his friends, betrayed by one of his disciples. The cross as well was about giving up power rather than taking it. Jesus having the power to come down off the cross but staying there just so he could serve others. But all of this just seemed like madness to the Greek person. As one writer puts it, Stephen um, puts it like this, no sane person is looking to embrace a wisdom that is going to land them on a cross on death row in the electric chair. Wisdom is supposed to do the opposite. Wisdom is supposed to purchase power, to accumulate acclaim. And so the message of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. And yet Paul kept on preaching it. Now, why is that? Well, we see in verse 24, he says that in the cross, he could see the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, if you look at the gospel through the lens of the world, it is folly. There are stumbling blocks, but that's only because it doesn't fit with the wisdom of this world. But the thing is, it's not trying to. You see... It's working on a whole other level. It's working according to the wisdom of God. So, of course, there is irony at the cross, isn't there? The Jews couldn't accept the idea that their Messiah was crucified because that suggested he was cursed. And, of course, he was cursed. He was cursed for us. He took on the curse that we deserve. That's that's what we read in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Yes, Jesus was cursed, but he was cursed for us. And then the Greeks couldn't respect a God who was uh, affected by humanity. But we know that this is actually to God's glory. We worship him because he did this, because he's willing to, to give himself for us. And we know that in his weakness, Jesus was actually showing his strength, his strength over sin, over death, over the grave. It was our sin that drove Jesus to the cross, but it's his death that frees us from sin and death. 
Colossians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with him. He's forgiven us our trespasses. He's cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That sounds like power, doesn't it? The kind of power that defeats the biggest enemy of them all, sin. And we know that because of Christ's death, he's been given all authority. In Philippians 2, we're told that because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so you can see why Paul concludes in chapter 1, verse 25, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What looks like foolishness is actually wisdom and what looks like weakness is actually strength. By doing what no one else would do, God did what no one else could do. Now, can you see that? When you look at the cross, do you see weakness or do you see strength? Do you see folly or do you see wisdom? It all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? You see, if you're looking for power and for greatness, then the gospel just won't be attractive to you. You see, it doesn't make us powerful, doesn't promise wealth, won't help you win friends and influence people. There's no guarantee of comfort. But if you're looking for forgiveness and hope, then you'll be drawn to the gospel. You'll find redemption here. You'll find power over sin. You'll find God. But you have to be looking for him. And that's the key. Uh, You see, that's the litmus test too, isn't it? The ultimate stumbling block in in the gospel is... It's not the death of Jesus, it's why he had to die. He had to die because of us, because of our sin, because of what we have done wrong and because of our inability to make it right. And that's the thing that makes people, that makes people like us resist the gospel. It's not so much about the science, it's not so much about um, anything else. It's about the core of the gospel, that we need this. You see, we don't like hearing that we're sinners. We like to think that we're good people. But the Bible confronts us with our wickedness. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we're powerless to fix this. We need Jesus to fix this. We need him to take all of our iniquity. Now, if you want power and glory, you won't listen to that. You want a message that makes you feel good about yourself, a message that affirms you, that tells you you're awesome. And so you'll just walk past the gospel. You'll write it off as folly or you'll reject it as demeaning. But if you see your sin, then you'll see as well the glory of the cross. You'll see the wisdom and the power of the cross and you'll embrace it. And so ultimately, our response to the message of the cross actually says more about us than it does about the gospel. As Paul puts it in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
So what do you see? If you see life in the cross, then you'll find life. Life eternal, a life that is full and forever. But if you see only death, then you'll only see folly and weakness. If you're looking to to make yourself great, then the gospel won't cut it. But if you can see that we're actually small, then you'll find the God who is great. And then you want to make him great by declaring the gospel. You see, Corinth was all about wisdom and power, and so are we. So is our culture. Uh, There's this great little bit on Seinfeld. I don't know if you've seen this episode, but there's a stand-up bit at the end of one of the shows where Jerry Seinfeld is talking about public speaking. He says, according to most studies, uh, people's number one fear is public speaking, and number two is death. That means, he says, to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. (laughs) Of course, he's being facetious. But what's going on here? Well, Stephen um, suggests that we're actually just scared of looking dumb. Our culture prizes intelligence and ability. We want to look uh, accomplished. We want to look capable. We want to look erudite. I mean, what a great word that is. That's why we make sure we have our books behind us on Zoom. That's why people fill their offices with their degrees. I mean, even on the castle, Daryl Kerrigan is most proud of his daughter graduating from Sunshine Tafe for hairdressing. So just like the people of Corinth, we prize wisdom. And so uh, when we tell the gospel, we're often embarrassed by how the gospel sounds. And so maybe we'll kind of uh, uh, just uh, kind of reduce or diminish or even just flat out deny the supernatural elements of the gospel. Or instead, we might have the idea that we have to win people to the gospel through our arguments. We have to argue them into the kingdom with our logic We're trying to be as wise as everyone else around us. We're trying to play their game. And also our culture prizes power. We admire the successful, just like in Corinth. We we admire the geniuses like Steve Jobs, the self-made millionaires or the athletes who come from nothing to reach the top. And even if we don't share their stories, we want to share in their successes. So if your AFL team wins the premiership, you make sure you put the premier's sticker up on the back windscreen. And when Australia does well at the Olympics, we all consider ourselves a part of that. Somehow this is ours, even if we just washed it on the couch. And in the context of this, the message of the cross might sit awkwardly, just as it did in Corinth. We want a gospel that seems powerful and wise, a message that's impressive. And as Christians, we're we're tempted to just go ahead and, and give them this kind of thing. So just think about the prosperity gospel, this idea that Jesus came to give you health, wealth and happiness. It's a gospel without suffering, without difficulty, a gospel promising to make you great. But then it just makes God small. He's he's nothing more than a genie granting someone all of their wishes. Now, I'm sure that we would all reject that, but we might still have some of the elements of our culture, more than we think, more than we want to realise. So I've realised recently, for instance, just how much we can be drawn to power and glory. So for years I've read and heard people talk about how Christians can reshape the culture and make a difference and That all sounds really good, but are we drawn to this partly because of what he offers us? You know, we like the idea of making an impact, of having an influence, of being successful, of being noticed, of being remembered. So are we about God's kingdom or our empire? 
And see, as soon as you start going down that path, as soon as you start looking to create success for yourself through the gospel, you might start finding yourself embarrassed by aspects of it. You know, all this stuff about sin and judgment. I mean, we're tempted then to just massage the message. (coughs) About a decade or so ago, a group called Lifeway Research did a study of sermons preached from across America looking to see how thoroughly they uh, presented the gospel. They wanted to see how explicit people were. Uh, did they make it clear what Jesus had done and why? Did they say the, the bad news about human sin and judge, God's judgment as, as well as the good news about God's forgiveness? Did they talk about all of those things or did they just talk about grace? And and when they presented Jesus as the saviour, did people really understand what they needed saving from? Well, the results were staggering. About out of a thousand odd sermons, they found that only 6% of those sermons told the gospel. 6%. And what made it even worse was I think that a lot of the sermons from this survey were from Christmas and Easter services where it's almost harder not to tell the gospel. What's going on here? How did this happen? Perhaps it was because people just assumed that everyone there knew the story of Jesus. Maybe. But I actually think it was because they wanted to keep the gospel message nice, wholesome, clean, respectable, inoffensive. But that's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is gory. Jesus died and he died because of our sin. Jesus died to save us from God's judgment. Jesus died to save us from hell. The message of the gospel and the cross is gory, but of course it's also glorious. Jesus died, but then he rose again because he could defeat death. Jesus died to remove the punishment for our sins. And we know that he did this because he was released from the grave. Heaven awaits us because Jesus went through hell for us. This is the gospel. This is the wisdom and the power of God. And this is the only thing that truly works. So if you ever attempted to stray from this, to massage the message, stop. The message of Christ crucified is the only thing that brings life. Just as we finish up, I want to share a story of someone who's in our church. I remember the first time they came to our church, we were doing Romans 1. And I saw these newcomers come in and I was worried because I knew that the message I was going to bring was about God's wrath. And I thought... Man, if all the weeks they chose to come, they'd come on this week. I mean, they're never going to come back. But they did. And they've kept coming ever since. And I remember catching up with the woman uh, a few days later. And she said that it was hearing about God's wrath that made her want to come back. Why was that? You see, she, she'd been in other churches for years, churches where they told her she was amazing, she was fantastic, and she was she was awesome. She didn't feel awesome. She knew that she was broken. She knew that she was sinful. She needed to hear that. And when we were able to share the wrath of God, we were also able to point to the grace of God and the forgiveness of God by pointing to the cross 
we actually showed how there was life. Now, she was probably already a Christian, but certainly from that moment, the gospel meant more to her. The death of Jesus has given her life. And so she's resolved that she wants to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's be the same. Father God, we want to thank you for the message of the cross. It's confronting and it's difficult because it confronts us with our sin. But thank you that it also shows us the wonder of grace and of Christ's forgiveness. Help us to hold on to that, to believe that for ourselves, to take that for ourselves, and then to share that with others. Lord, may you prepare their hearts to receive the bad news, but also to receive the good news, the glorious good news. Thank you that in the gospel, in the death of Christ, we find life. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless, guys. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.